Section 5 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7, by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Battle of Bannockburn, A.D. 1314. After the submission of Scotland in 1303, at the end of Wallace's heroic struggle, Edward I undertook to complete the union of that kingdom with England. But the great difficulty, says a historian, in dealing with the Scots was that they never knew when they were conquered, and just when Edward hoped that his scheme for union was carried out, they rose in arms once more. The Scottish leader now was Robert Bruce, Lord of Annandale and Earl of Carrick. He had acted with Wallace, but afterward swore fealty to Edward. Still later, he united with William Lamberton, Bishop of St. Andrews, against the English king. Edward heard of their compact while Bruce was in London, and the Scot fled to Dumfries. There, 1306, in the Church of the Grey Friars, he had an interview with John Comyn, called the Red Comyn, Bruce's rival for the Scottish throne which ended in a violent altercation and the killing of Comyn by Bruce with a dagger. Next to the Belials, Bruce was now nearest heir to the throne, and March 27, 1306, he was crowned. Edward now determined to take more vigorous measures than ever against the Scots. He denounced as traitors all who had participated in the murder of Comyn, and declared that all persons taken in arms would be put to death. He made great preparations for subduing Scotland, but while leading his army into that country, 1307, he died at Burke on the Sands near Carlisle. Meanwhile, Bruce, who ranks with Wallace as a Scottish hero, had suffered some reverses at the hands of the English. Under the Earl of Pembroke, in 1306, they took Perth and drove Bruce into the wilds of Athol. In the same year, at Derry, Bruce was defeated by Comyn's uncle, MacDougall, Lord of Lorne, and escaped to Ireland but in 1307 Bruce returned to Scotland and carried on the war against Edward II. The English were driven out of the strong places one by one, war alternated with diplomacy through several years, and at last came a crisis which roused the English government to a supreme effort. Stirling Castle still held out, besieged by Edward Bruce, Robert's brother, 1313, but its surrender was promised by Mowbray, the governor, in the event of his not being relieved before June 24, 1314. The relieving of Stirling meant for the English a new invasion of Scotland. On both sides, the strongest efforts were made, on the one side to relieve the castle, on the other to strengthen its besiegers. The opposing forces met in battle at Bannockburn, June 24, 1314, an action which has never been better described than in this characteristic recital by Professor Lang. Bannockburn, like the relief of Orléans or a marathon, was one of the decisive battles of the world. History hinged upon it. If England had won, Scotland might have dwindled into the condition of Ireland, for Edward II was not likely to aim at a statesmanlike policy of union in his father's manner. Could Scotland have accepted union at the first Edward's hands? Could he have refrained from his mistreatment, as we must think of it at Balliol? The fortunes of the Isle of Britain might have been happier. But had Scotland been trodden down at Bannockburn, the fortunes of the Isle might well have been worse. 
the singular and certain fact is that Bannockburn was fought on a point of chivalry, on a rule in a game. England must touch bar, relieve Sterling, as in some child's pastime. To the securing of the castle, the central gate of Scotland, north and south, England put forth her full strength. Bruce had no choice but to concentrate all the power of a now at last united realm, and stand just where he did stand. His enemies knew his purpose. By May 27th, Ritz informed England that the Scots were gathering on heights and morasses inaccessible to cavalry. If ever Edward showed energy, it was in preparing for the appointed midsummer day of 1314. The Rutuli Scotia contained several pages of his demands for men, horses, wines, hay, grain, provisions, and ships. Endless letters were sent to master mariners and magistrates of towns. The king appealed to his beloved Irish chiefs, O'Donnells, O'Flynns, O'Hanlons, McMahons, McCarthys, Kellys, O'Reillys, and O'Briens, and to Hibernia magnates, Anglico genere ortos, Butlers, Blunts, De Lacy's, Powers, and Russells. John of Argyle was made Admiral of the Western Fleet and was asked to conciliate the Islemen who, under Angus Og, were rallying to Bruce. The numbers of men engaged on either side in this war cannot be ascertained. Each kingdom had a year within which to muster and arm. Then all that worthy were to fight, of Scotland set all hail their might, while Barber makes Edward assemble not only his own chivalry that was so great it was furly, but also knights of France and Hainault, Bretagne and Gascony, Wales, Ireland, and Aquitaine. The whole English force is said to have exceeded 100,000, 40,000 of whom were cavalry, including 3,000 horses barded from counter to tail, armed against stroke of sword or point of spear. The baggage train was endless, bearing tents, harness, and apparel of chamber and hall, wine, wax, and all the luxuries of Edward's manner of campaigning, including animalia, perhaps lions. Thus the English advanced from Berwick, banners rightly fairly flaming, and pencils to the wind waving. On June 23rd, Bruce heard that the English host had streamed out of Edinburgh, where the dismantled castle was no safe hold, and were advancing on Falkirk. Bruce had summoned Scotland to tryst in Torwood, whence he could retreat at pleasure if, after all, retreat he must. The fiery cross, red with the blood of a sacrificed goat, must have flown through the whole of the Celtic land. Lanarkshire, Douglasdale, and Ettrick Forest were mustered under the banner of Douglas, the mullets not yet enriched with the royal heart. The men of Moray followed their new earl, Randolph, the adventurous knight who scaled the rock of the castle of the maidens. Renfrewshire, Boot, and Eyre were under the fessa of young Walter Stewart. Bruce had gathered his own Carrick men, and Angus Og led the wild levies of the isles. Of stout spearmen and fleet-footed clansmen, Bruce had abundance. But what were his archers to the archers of England, or his five hundred horse under Keith the Marischal, to the rival knights of England, Hanal, Gien, and Almain? Battles, however, are won by heads, as well as by hearts and hands. The victor of Glen Trull and Kraken and London Hill knew every move in the game, while Randolph and Douglas were experts in making one man do the work of five. Bruce, too, had choice of ground, and the ground suited him well. To reach Stirling, the English must advance by their left, along the so-called German Way, through the village of St. Nyans, or by their right, through the Carse, 
partly enclosed and much broken in drainless days by reedy lockins bruce did not make his final dispositions till he learned that the english meant to march by the former route he then chose ground where his front was defended first by the little burn of bannock which at one point winds through a clough with steep banks and next by two morasses halbert's bog and milton bog what is now arable ground may have been a lock in old days and these two marshes were then impassable by a column of attack between charters hall where edward had his headquarters and park's mill was a marge of firm soil along which a column could pass in scrubby country and between the bogs was a sort of bridge of dry land by these two avenues the english might assail the scottish lines these approaches bruce is said to have rendered difficult by pitfalls and even by caltrops to maim the horses he determined to fight on foot the wooded country being difficult for horsemen and the foe being infinitely superior in cavalry his army was arranged in four battles with randolph to lead the voward and watch against any attempt to throw cavalry into stirling edward bruce commanded the division on the right next the torwood walter stewart a lad with douglas led the third division bruce himself and angus og with the men of carrick and the celts were in the rear bruce had no mind to take the offensive and as the battle of the standard to open the fight with a charge of impetuous mountaineers on sunday morning mass was said and men shrived them they thought to die in the melee or else to set their country free they ate but bread and water for it was the vigil of st john news came that the english had moved out of falkirk and douglas and the steward brought tidings of the great and splendid host that was rolling north bruce bade them make little of it in the hearing of the army meanwhile philip de mowbray who commanded in stirling had ridden forth to meet and counsel edward his advice was to come no nearer perhaps a technical relief was held to have already been secured by the presence of the army mowbray was not heard the young men would not listen gloucester with the van entered the park where he was met as we shall see and clifford beaumont and sir thomas gray with three hundred horsemen skirted the wood where randolph was posted a clear way lying before them to the castle of stirling bruce had seen this movement and told randolph that a rose of his chaplet was fallen the phrase attesting the king's love of chivalrous romance to pursue horsemen with infantry seemed vain enough but randolph moved out of cover thinking perhaps that knights adventurous would refuse no chance to fight if this was his thought he reckoned well beaumont cried to his knights give ground leave them fair field gray hinted that the scots were in too great force and beaumont answered if you fear fly sir said sir thomas for fear i fly not this day and so spurred in between beaumont and diancourt and galloped on the spears diancourt was slain gray was unhorsed and taken the three hundred lances of beaumont then circled randolph's spearmen round about on every side but the spears kept back the horses swords maces and knives were thrown all was done as by the french cavalry against the british squares at waterloo and all as vainly the hedge of steel was unbroken and in the hot sun of june a mist of dust and heat brooded over the battle sick murkness in the air above them was as when the sons of thetis and the dawn fought under the walls of windy troy douglas beheld the distant cloud and rode to bruce imploring leave to hurry to randolph's aid i will not break my ranks for him said bruce yet douglas had his will 
but the English wavered, seeing his line advance, and thereon Douglas halted his men, lest Randolph should lose renown. Beholding this, the spearmen of Randolph, in their turn, charged and drove the weary English horse and their disheartened riders. Meanwhile, Edward had halted his main force to consider whether they should fight or rest. But Gloucester's party knew nothing of his halt, had advanced into the wooded park, and Bruce rode down to the right in his armor and with a gold coronal on his bassinet, but mounted on a mere palfrey. To the front of the English van, under Gloucester and Hereford, rode Sir Henry Bohun, a bow-shot beyond his company. Recognizing the king, who was arraying his ranks, Bowen sped down upon him, apparently hoping to take him. He thought that he should dwell lightly, win him and have him at his will. But Bruce, in this fatal movement, when history hung on his hand and eye, uprose in his stirrups and clove Bowen's helmet, the axe breaking in that stroke. It was a desperate but a winning blow. Bruce's spears advanced, and the English van withdrew in half-superstitious fear of the omen. His lords blamed Bruce, but the king has answer made them none, but turned upon the axe shaft what was, with the stroke, broken in twa. Initium malorum hoc, this was the beginning of evil, says the English chronicler. After this double success in the quatre bras of the Scottish Waterloo, Bruce, according to Barber, offered to his men their choice of withdrawal or of standing it out. The great general might well be of doubtful mind. Was tomorrow to bring a second and more fatal Falkirk? The army of Scotland was protected, as Wallace's army at Falkirk had been, by difficult ground. But the English archers might again rain their blinding showers of shafts into the broad mark offered by the clumps of spears, and again the English knights might break through the shaken ranks. Bruce had but a few squadrons of horse. Could they be trusted to scatter the bowmen of the English forests, and to escape a flank charge from the far heavier cavalry of Edward? On the whole, was not the old strategy best, the strategy of retreat? So Bruce may have pondered. He had brought his men to the ring, and they had voted for dancing. Meanwhile, the English rested on a marshy plain, Utra Bannockburn, in sore discomfiture, says Gray. He must mean south of Bannockburn, taking the point of view of his father, at that hour captive in Bruce's camp. He tells us that the Scots meant to retire into the Lennox, a right strong country. This confirms, in a way, Barber's tale of Bruce suggesting retreat, when Sir Alexander Seton, deserting Edward's camp, advised Bruce of the English lack of spirit and bade him face the foe next day. To retire, indeed, was Bruce's, as it had been Wallace's, natural policy. The English would soon be distressed for want of supplies. On the other hand, they had clearly made no arrangements for an orderly retreat if they lost the day. With Bruce, this was a motive for fighting them. The advice of Seton prevailed. The Scots would stand their ground. The sun of Midsummer Day rose on the right of the mass done in front of the Scottish lines. Men breakfasted, and Bruce knighted Douglas, the steward, and other of his nobles. The host then moved out of the wood, and the standards rose above the spears of the soldiers. Edward Bruce held the right wing, Randolph the center, the left under Douglas and the steward, rested of St. Ninians. Bruce, as he had arranged, was in reserve with Carrick and the Isles. Will these men fight? asked Edward, and Sir Ingram assured him that such was their intent. He advised that the English should make a feigned retreat, when the Scots would certainly break their ranks, then prick we on them handily. Edward rejected his old ruse, 
which probably would not have beguiled the Scottish leader. The Scots then knelt for a moment of prayer as the abbot of Interfray bore the crucifix along the line, but they did not kneel to Edward. His van, under Gloucester, fell on Edward Bruce's division, where there was hand-to-hand -hand fighting, broken lances, dying chargers, the rear ranks of Gloucester pressing vainly on the front ranks, unable to deploy for the straightness of the ground. Meanwhile, Randolph's men moved forward slowly with extended spears as they were plunged in the sea of charging knights. Douglas and the steward were also engaged, and the hideous shower of arrows was ever raining from the bows of England. This must have been the crisis of the fight, according to Barber, and Bruce bade Keith, with his five hundred horse, charge the English archers on the flank. The bowmen do not seem to have been defended by pikes. They fell beneath the lances of the Marischal, as the archers of Ettrick had fallen at Falkirk. The Scottish archers now took heart, and loosed into the crowded and reeling ranks of England, while the flying bowmen of the south clashed against and confused the English charge. Then Scottish archers took to their steel sparths, who ever loved to come to handstrokes, and hewed into the mass of the English, so that the field, whither Bruce brought up his reserves to support Edward Bruce on the right, was a mass of wild, confused fighting. In this melee, the great body of the English army could deal no stroke, swaying helplessly as southern knights or northern spears won some feet of ground. So, in the space between Halbert's Bog and the Burn, the melee rang and wavered, the long spears of the Scottish ranks unbroken and pushing forward, the ground before them so covered with fallen men and horses that the English advance was clogged and crushed between the resistance in the front and the pressure behind. God will have a stroke in every fight, says the romance of Mallory. While the discipline was lost, and England was trusting to sheer weight and who will pound longest, a fresh force, banners displayed, was seen rushing down the Gillies Hill beyond the Scottish right. The English could deem no less than that this multitude were tardy levies from beyond the spay, above all when the slogans rang out from the fresh advancing host. It was a body of yeomen, shepherds, and camp followers who could no longer remain and gaze when fighting and plunder were in sight. With blankets fastened to cut saplings for banner poles, they ran down to the conflict. The king saw them and well knew that the moment had come. He pealed his ansier, called his battle cry, faint hearts of England failed. Men turned, trampling through the hardy warriors who still stood and died. The knights who rode at Edward's reign strove to draw him toward the castle of Stirling. But now, the foremost knights of Edward Bruce's division, charging on foot, had fought their way to the English king and laid hands on the rich trappings of his horse. Edward cleared his way with strokes of his mace. His horse was stabbed, but a fresh mount was found for him. Even Sir Giles de Argentine, the best knight on the ground, bade Edward fly to Stirling Castle. For me, I am not of custom to fly, he said, nor shall I do so now. God keep you. Thereon he spurred into the press, crying Argentine, and died among the spears. None held his ground for England. The burn was choked with fallen men and horses, so that folk might pass dryshod over it. The country people fell on and slew. If Bruce had possessed more cavalry, not an Englishman would have reached the Tweed. Edward, as Argentine bade him, rode to Stirling, but Mowbray told him that there he would be but a captive king. He spurred south with five hundred horse, Douglas following with sixty, so close that no Englishman might alight, but was slain or taken. Lawrence de Abernethy, with eighty horse, was riding to join the English, but turned, 
and with Douglas pursued them. Edward reached Dunbar, whence he took boat for Berwick. In his terror, he vowed to build a college of Carmelites, students in theology. It is Oriel College today, with a Scot for provost. Among those who fell on the English side were the son of Comyn, Gloucester, Clifford, Harcourt, Courtenay, and seven hundred other gentlemen of coat armor were slain. Hereford, later, with Angus, Umfraville, and Sir Thomas Gray, was among the prisoners. Sterling, of course, surrendered. The sun of Midsummer Day set on men wounded and weary, but victorious and free. The task of Wallace was accomplished. To many of the combatants, not the least agreeable result of Bannockburn was the unprecedented abundance of the booty. When campaigning, Edward denied himself nothing. His wardrobe and arms, his enormous and apparently well-supplied array of food wagons, his ecclesiastical vestments for the celebration of victory, his plate, his siege artillery, his military chests, with all the jewelry of his young minion knights, fell into the hands of the Scots. Down to Queen Mary's reign we read, in inventories, about costly vestments from the fight at Bannockburn. In Scotland it rained ransoms. The Rotuli Scotia, in 1314, full of Edward's preparation for war, in 1315, are rich in safe conducts for men going into Scotland to redeem prisoners. One of these, the brave Sir Marmaduke Twenge, renowned at Stirling Bridge, hid in the woods on Midsummer's night and surrendered to Bruce next day. The king gave him gifts and set him free unransomed. Indeed, the clemency of Bruce after his success is courteously acknowledged by the English chroniclers. This victory was due to Edward's incompetence, as well as to the excellent dispositions and indomitable courage of Bruce, and to the intolerable axes of his men. No measures had been taken by Edward to secure a retreat. Only one rally at the Bloody Fault is reported. The English fought widely, their measures being laid on the strength of a confidence which, after the skirmishes of Sunday, June 23rd, they no longer entertained. They suffered what, at Agincourt, Cressy, Portier, and Vernoy, their descendants were to inflict. Horses and banners, gay armor and chivalric trappings, were set at naught by the spurs and spears of infantry acting on favorable ground. From the dust and reek of that burning day of June, Scotland emerged a people, firm in a glorious memory. Out of weakness she was made strong, being strangely led through paths of little promise since the day when Bruce's dagger stroke at Dumfries closed from him the path of returning. End of section 5